This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 6, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Just days ahead of a deadline to recertify the Iran nuclear deal, it now appears the president plans to decertify the agreement. That sets the stage for Congress to consider alternatives to the deal, like sanctions. A new Cato Institute paper by Cato's Emma Ashford and John Glazer discusses those alternatives in detail. Their conclusion, whatever you might think of the Iran deal, the alternatives are worse. Emma and I spoke uh, earlier about um, Nikki Haley's sort of uh, pitch, it seemed like, to uh, the president to decertify uh, Iran with respect to compliance with the JCPOA, so-called the so-called Iran nuclear deal. And um, she didn't really lay out many options that existed uh, before them, he ju- she just laid out ideas that said, well, look, this Iran is not doing things that aren't a part of the deal. And uh, that seems like a, a weird argument to make, but it also is the kind of thing where, you know, we have certain expectations and the United States um, would like to have more options. So where do we stand right now with the administration and the deal? So this this question of what is the administration's argument against the nuclear deal is a really interesting one. Um, the case that's being made by a lot of high-ranking officials, everyone from Nikki Haley to Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, basically relies on an argument that Iran is not fulfilling the spirit of the deal, even if they're technically within the letter of the deal. Or they say, well, the deal was designed to bring peace to the Middle East and it, it hasn't done that. But the fact of the matter is that the the nuclear deal is so-called because it was very narrowly focused on nuclear issues. Um, The deal basically only concerns Iran's enrichment of nuclear material, what they can do with that material. And it's basically about preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. It doesn't address missiles. It doesn't address Iran's actions in the region in any larger sense. Um, And so this argument from the Trump administration is really quite disingenuous. Yeah, I have read the text of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. I've looked for its spirit. I can't find it anywhere. Um, The fact is this was narrowly conceived as a nonproliferation agreement. And uh, Trump himself has said several times in public that he thinks Iran is violating the deal. The problem is that Iran is in fact not in violation of the deal. It's complying. The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the one, the group, the UN group that goes inside of Iran to inspect all of its facilities and so on, has affirmed formally uh, eight separate times in detailed reports that Iran is in compliance with the deal. All of our European allies that were signatories to the deal, Germany, France, the UK, All of them say that Iran is complying with the deal. Russia says Iran is complying with the deal. China says Iran is complying with the deal. The joint commission of the JCPOA, which includes representatives from the European Union, says Iran is complying with the deal. Rex Tillerson uh, yesterday and then again uh, earlier on Sunday on CBS's Face the Nation said Iran is in technical compliance with the deal. Trump's own Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, reportedly is uh, supportive of staying in the deal and acknowledges Iranian compliance. Uh, Yesterday, uh, at a speech at the Hudson Institute, uh, the head of the U.S. Strategic Command, one of the highest 
military officials in the country, General John Hyten, said that Iran is complying with the deal and warned about the consequences of the United States backing out. Ed Royce, Republican representative uh, and the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, said this week that instead of backing out of the deal, Trump should enforce it. Rand Paul, another uh, prominent member of the president's own party who opposed the deal in 2015 when it was signed, said this week that Iran is complying and that the United States should stay in it. So one thing should be made perfectly clear. If in mid-October, Trump declares Iran in violation of the nuclear deal, he'll be doing so in defiance of the facts, in defiance of the international community, in defiance of at least some prominent members of his own party and in defiance of many members of his own executive branch uh, serving in both civilian and military positions. And the immediate effect of, of doing this, of decertifying Iranian compliance despite the facts, could very likely be that we sacrifice the unprecedented level of transparency that we now have on the nuclear program in Iran and uh, possibly put the U.S. and Iran back on the path to confrontation and possibly even direct conflict. Uh, the stakes are very, very high here. And if Trump goes through with it, he'll be electing to put us into a much worse situation than we're currently in. All right. So who wants to get rid of it? You mentioned a whole bunch of uh, Republicans and administration officials who, uh, while maybe not supportive of the deal itself, are will acknowledge that Iran is in compliance with it. Who wants to get rid of it? It essentially amounts to President Trump. Uh, Nikki Haley, his UN ambassador, has been uh, publicly speaking very forcefully in support of uh, decertification, although she kind of walks a line without saying things explicitly. The rest of his administration in the past months have been, has, have been reported to be supportive of the deal and want to stay in it. Uh, but they're trying to say publicly things that are closer to what the president has been saying uh, of late. So. There's also a, um, I hesitate to say broader constituency because it's really not that many people, but there is a larger group um, in the DC policy community uh, of people who are Iran hawks and have been Iran hawks for many years, including various neoconservatives associated <clears throat> with the George W. Bush administration, people like John Bolton, who was uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under George W. Bush and who's been advocating for military action against Iran for many years. These are the same people who now are telling Trump, you should decertify Iran from the nuclear deal because we will offer you better policy alternatives. Um, and the better policy alternatives that they're suggesting are the same things that they've been suggesting for many years, adding new sanctions, uh, military options against Iranian nuclear or, or military sites, um, trying to undermine the Iranian regime from within by using domestic groups. And all of these are sort of being presented as an alternative to the JCPOA, um, a way that rather than engaging with Iran, they're saying that the US should be seeking confrontation. Now, uh we mentioned Nikki Haley and she, as you said, John, she has sort of walked a line. She hasn't advocated for any specific policy, but she has made it very clear uh, with uh, her words that this is probably the right thing to do. Um, what are the options that they that these people lay out? I remember Nikki Haley in her speech at the American Enterprise Institute didn't actually really lay out any options. So what are the options that they these people view as a better deal than the one that the world has with Iran? 
Well, this is a key point, I think, because the the speeches that are given almost never give concrete policy specifics. They just say, we will take a harder line on Iran, or perhaps we will have a stronger sanctions regime on Iran. But the options, if you, if you go through some of the policy writings on this topic, it boils down to four big options. Um, and a lot of these could be done either inside the framework of the JCPOA or outside it, but they would almost inevitably produce produce worse results. So the options are increasing sanctions on Iran. Um, So we would dial up the sanctions pressure basically in violation of the JCPOA and try to hurt the Iranians enough that they, uh, I guess, change their behavior or in some cases, Hawks suggest that the Iranian regime should simply stop existing. The second option that's often suggested is a policy of challenging Iranian proxies throughout the region. So basically, the U.S. would commit forces or aid to groups that are fighting Hezbollah inside Syria or fighting the Houthis in Yemen with the goal uh, of sort of trying to undermine Iran in the broader region. The third option um, is sometimes called regime change from within. And this is in some ways a reaction to our failures in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that is hawks no longer advocate a military intervention to actually overthrow the Iranian regime. Instead, what they're advocating is that we support pro-democracy groups in Iran, uh, and that in turn, that will eventually weaken the regime and we will see a, a regime change inside Iran. And then the fourth option is the most extreme. Um, And there aren't many people advocating for this, but it is effectively military strikes on Iranian nuclear sites, um, sort of like the George W. Bush administration considered prior to the negotiation of the JCPOA, um, or military strikes on Iranian military facilities, perhaps the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, inside Iran. Um, And so those are sort of the four paths that you could take if you wanted to pursue a more confrontational approach to Iran. The problem, as John and I have written about, is that all of those options carry big risks and they're not particularly likely to succeed. All right. So can we take those in turn? So we can ratchet up sanctions on Iran. This is this is something we can do. In fact, Congress has already uh, increased the sanctions on Iran uh, about a month back. And the problem is the more sanctions that we add, the more likely it is to actually uh, destroy the JCPOA because Iran can quite rightly say that the U.S., is not in compliance. We promised them sanctions relief if they gave up their nuclear program. If we sanction them more, we are not doing that. Um, It's also really unlikely that the sanctions will actually work. Prior to the negotiation of the nuclear deal, we had extremely draconian sanctions regimes um, pushed through the United Nations, approved by the Security Council. The Europeans in particular were helpful in they banned Iranian oil imports into the European Union. That was very harmful to the Iranian economy. Today, the Europeans aren't likely to do that. They don't want us to pull out of the nuclear deal. They don't want us to add sanctions on Iran, and they're not likely to cooperate in doing so. The second option, um, and the other option that I examine in in our paper, is this idea of pushing back regionally. Um, And there are two big problems with this. 
The first is that there is really no coherent opposition to Iran in the region. Um, if you look at the headlines that we've seen lately about the conflict uh, between Saudi Arabia and Qatar that's been ongoing, these are the countries that the Trump administration would rely on to form a coherent alliance against Iran. These countries aren't, in fact, allied with one another. If you look at more uh, specific countries, if you say inside Syria we should arm rebels or send U.S. forces to push back on Iran, those rebel groups really don't exist. This is something that we discovered during the fight against ISIS, that uh, we really don't have many allies in the region, particularly not allies that are willing to fight against Iranian proxies. And with every U.S. soldier that we commit to this kind of conflict, the risk of substantial U.S. deaths goes up. Yeah, and the other two options, uh, as Emma laid out, are sort of regime change from within trying to support Iranian opposition groups to someday overthrow the regime and then, and then finally military action. So the regime change from within crowd is way off base. This is a plan that is just hopelessly infeasible. On the one hand, there are no viable candidates inside Iran for U.S. support to try to overthrow the regime. Uh, one of the favorites among very prominent U.S. hawks is the Mujahideen e Kalk or MEK. This is a Marxist uh, uh, revolutionary group uh, of Islamists that grew up in the 60s and 70s in opposition to the Shah uh, that the, the, the Shah of Iran that we imposed in 1953. And uh, they were described by the State Department uh, as a terrorist organization until 2012. And so they're not a really good candidate for U.S. support, not to mention the fact that they have zero support base inside Iran. They're an exile group. You know, the Iranians don't want them and they would not be welcomed uh, to sort of start any uh, fomenting or, or political parties inside Iran with U.S. support. Other people point to the, the so-called green movement, which is a group that sort of uh, came out of uh, the Iranian elections in 2009. They were contested presidential elections. And this is a group of sort of moderate reformists, but they have not articulated any intention or desire to overthrow the regime. They merely are a political party or movement that wanted to contest the presidential elections in 2009. And if they have any hope of uh, gaining popular support in Iran, the last thing they want is any whiff of U.S. Uh, support for regime change. Uh, the final point on this score is that Regime change operations simply don't work. Whether it's overt or covert, uh, U.S. efforts to change foreign governments don't end up serving U.S. interests and they typically fail and, and backfire and uh, end up being really counterproductive to U.S. interests. The final uh, option uh, that is sometimes talked about is military action and, and this, is, uh, this is a really uh, bad option. Uh, it offers us really no prospect of success without uh, a very, very high costs and risks. The main issue is that, uh, first of all, it's, it would be illegal. Uh, you're only supposed to attack another country in international law if you have the permission of the UN Security Council or if you can justify it in self-defense. Uh, furthermore, I'm not sure that Congress is going to be willing to grant Trump the constitutional authority to take action against Iran when they don't pose a threat to us. Uh, but furthermore, any even limited military action uh, against Iran is very likely to just 
escalate to a point that is uh, that is way too costly. So war games that have been uh, played uh, played out for for this kind of scenario within the Pentagon and outside it say that Iran would probably retaliate against U.S. bases in the region retaliate against U.S. allies in the region. This would prompt, you know, greater escalation and involvement from the United States. Uh, one report in 2012 um, uh, tried to estimate what the costs of this kind of extended military confrontation with Iran would be, and they said that it would cost more than more in blood and treasure than the Iraq and Afghanistan wars combined. So the military option is just not a good option at all. It doesn't offer us anything. Um, and I think what this reinforces, the failure, the, the, the risks and dangers and costs of these four options, what it reinforces is that the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, is working. Uh, it's providing us with a lot of transparency about Iran's nuclear tro- program. And one benefit of the deal is that it took the United States off the warpath with Iran. Before the signing of the JCPOA, there was lots of pressure from Israel, Saudi Arabia, hawks in the United States to take military action because Iran's pr- nuclear program was in the shadows. It was opaque. We didn't know what was going on. But now we do. The, the Iran deal is working. Iran is complying with it. And uh, to blow it up, uh, or unravel it deliberately by decertifying it or pursuing any of these other four options with aggression, with, with aggression uh, is just not in U.S. interests. How should the U.S. proceed? The important thing to remember is that all of these options that we look at in the paper were considered first by the George W. Bush administration, then by the Barack Obama administration. And in both cases, they decided that all of these options were too risky and that they would instead pursue a less confrontational path and actually try and negotiate with Iran over its nuclear program. The JCPOA was the result. Trump appears set to throw all of that away and turn us back towards these options that were so bad that two previous administrations didn't consider them. So what we advocate instead is continuing that path of cooperation. Yes, the Iranian regime does terrible things. Yes, we're not likely to be allies anytime soon or even friends. But we have proven over the last few years that we can work with them on specific issues where we share joint concerns. Building on the success of the JCPOA rather than undermining it will probably bring us closer to a better relationship with Iran in the long run if we can avoid tearing up this agreement now. Emma Ashford and John Glazer are authors of the new Cato paper, Unforced Error, The Risks of Confrontation with Iran, available at Cato.org. And subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.